This is They Create Worlds, episode 52, The Many Faces of Konami. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Once long ago, there was a little game company in Japan that brought us fun, love, and enjoyment. And then they said, we're done making money and we don't like Metal Gear anymore. (laughs) And now they're doing other things. Largely in the mobile space, yes. Uh, Obviously, we are talking about the company Konami, which was one of the more successful arcade developers in the mid-80s to late-90s was certainly one of the most successful, perhaps the most successful developer on the Famicom slash Nintendo Entertainment System. Has brought us many series beloved by many people and has more recently decided to really not be involved in all of that anymore and kind of focus a little more on their slot machines and on their mobile games and all of that, which has made some people very sad. There are a lot of people that obviously feel very surprised, hurt, and betrayed by this turn of events. It's really not surprising if you go back and look at the Konami history generally, because unlike some of these other companies that were either founded by engineers like Namco was, or were founded by long-standing coin men like Sega or Capcom were, Konami is a company that has always been opportunistic, that has always been more about being involved in the business and making the money rather than being tied to any one field. And they've actually switched gears many times throughout their history. And in a way, this is just the most recent example of that. So while it's certainly sad for all the Metal Gear fans out there, it's really what the company does. And while people certainly have a right to be disappointed by that (laughs) no question at all definitely it's really not fair to say that konami is betraying what it is as opposed to just betraying the fans of certain of its series because this is really quintessential konami if you look back at the history and since we happen to be a let's look back at the history kind of podcast for some reason let's take a look at a little bit of that konami history We started to talk a little bit about Konami before privately, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we really got into the history so much as opposed to just a baseline that we said there, which is this is something that's systemic to Konami, where they have changed gears. And that's why the title of this episode is The Many Faces of Konami, because Mm -hmm. they've changed a lot over the years. And they didn't start off as a video game company, and you've alluded to the arcade side of it. So Mm -hmm. where did they get their start? So the company Konami is really wrapped up in one of its three founders, Kagemasa Kozuki, who is still the chairman of the company today. His son has taken over the day-to-day running of the company as CEO and president, but Kozuki is still the chairman of the holding company that runs all of these Konami businesses. Kagamasa Kozuki was an economics major at Kansai University. From there, he ended up in the jukebox business. I don't know exactly how he got involved in that, but 
he had an economics degree. I mean, his first goal very clearly was to just be involved in business. I don't think, though I could be wrong, that he necessarily cared what that business was. But he's a businessman first and foremost. He's not one of these guys like Akinzo Tsujimoto at uh, Capcom or a David Rosen at Sega who had a long history of being involved in the coin-op industry and then transitioned from that into video games. But he did start in the music industry. After he graduated in 1966, he took a job with Columbia Japan Record Company, uh, the Arma Columbia Records in Japan. After he did that for a few years, three or four years, he decided to strike out on his own and establish his own jukebox operating company, rental repair, stocking with new songs, all of that kind of stuff, an operator in the jukebox business. This was a period of time when the jukebox was just about hitting its peak popularity in Japan. Jukeboxes didn't really start penetrating the Japanese economy until kind of the mid-1950s. And it wasn't really until the early 1960s that they really started being popular. This is in part a byproduct of Japan's difficulties in the post-war period. Obviously, immediately after the war, as we've talked about before, they didn't have the disposable income to get involved in all of this kind of thing. And we talked a little bit about in our Origins of Japanese Arcade episodes how Taito began buying secondhand jukeboxes from American military bases. and refurbishing them and putting them on the market. And that was kind of the beginning of the jukebox business. And then several companies, including Taito and Sega, got involved in the importation of jukeboxes. By the mid to late 1960s, this was kind of a thriving segment of the uh, the Japanese coin-op industry. And uh, Kagamasa Kozuki, coming out of the record industry as he did, decided that this would be a lucrative area to get into. And we didn't really cover them much in those episodes because the jukebox in their standpoint they weren't such a major player as Sega and Taito well sure because we're just talking about uh, an operator here i mean Taito and Sega were major distributors they both made deals Taito made deals with Seberg and AMI and Sega made a deal with Rockola so they were major distributors that were importing american jukeboxes directly from the states and then serving as both an operator and a distributor Whereas this is a very small outfit that's just functioning as an operator, kind of in the Osaka area, which is where Kozuki is from and where Kozuki is based. So, yeah, I mean, this is a small player, but they're out there. They're, they're doing the route. And it's the product of three people. Kozuki is the big guy, the main founder. He was joined by two other founders as well. Uh, the first of them, Tatsuo Miyasako, also worked with Kozuki at Columbia, Japan. They were actually both involved in jukeboxes there. So when Kozuki is deciding to found this new jukebox operator, it's basically spinning out and starting on his own the same thing that he had already been doing at Columbia, Japan, just being his own boss. And so Miyasako worked with him as well, and he was the one in charge of record supply for procuring the records that Columbia, Japan was putting in the jukeboxes. And then Miyasako knew a third individual who worked at or owned, I'm not exactly sure which, a record store named Yoshinobu Naka. So Miyasako brought him in on this, and the three of them founded the company. And so that's actually where the name comes from. Agamasa Kozuki, K-O. Yoshinobu Naka, N-A. Tatsuo 
Miyasako, M-I, first two initials, last name, Ko-na-mi. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's the origin of the name. And it happens that the word actually has a meaning in Japanese as well. It means little waves. So it's kind of this idea that a wave is kind of a powerful, sudden, onrushing event. So they're, they're making waves in their industry. Konami. But then it also works because it's the first two letters of each person's name. Very coincidental. That's what they went with. And, and kind of the classic Konami logo, the one you and I might think of uh, from when we were kids with kind of the two orange squiggly things. The wavy line. Exactly. Thing. That's meant to kind of convey this idea of waves. It's kind of a stylized form of a wave because that's what the word Konami means. That's not in any way a coincidence. <laughs> So they decide to do this business together where they're doing the jukebox uh, operating business, rental repair, supply, etc. That's fine for a few years. But by the beginning of the 1970s, the jukebox business is really starting to subside in Japan. I mean, it had already been in irreversible decline in the United States. And now that decline is starting to hit Japan, too, which is often just a little bit, at least in this period, a little bit behind the United States on trends, as we've talked about before in some of our other uh, comparative episodes. A couple things going on there. One is Muzak, piped music, where restaurants are just restaurants, bars, taverns, whatever, are just piping music through a essentially PA system and not allowing people to to pick their own things anymore. That's one trend. And then uh, a trend that is very particular to Japan in this period is the rise of karaoke. Karaoke becomes something that is uh, far more important than a jukebox. Why passively listen to a song when you can sing and act it out in front of all of your friends? It's nothing but fun. I mean, karaoke is, still is, I believe, but certainly in the 70s, 80s, 90s, etc., is huge, huge in Japan because it's a very communal culture anyway. So, yeah, in the United States, uh, where karaoke, this is one area where the Japanese were ahead of us (laughs) when karaoke started penetrating the U.S., it's something that, yeah, you might go with a couple of your friends and you might hang out and sing a couple of songs and have fun and then go do something else or whatever. But in Japan, which is such a communal culture, there's this push for groups of people to do things together and to bond together across a variety of activities. So if you're a Japanese salaryman, you spend all day long, often till very late, uh, often far later than the five o'clock that the Americans would get out. You spend all day together doing the business together, and then you continue to bond together by going to a karaoke bar together and singing karaoke together. So, I mean, it's a hugely important, almost ritualistic experience. It's not just, oh, it might be fun to to go do a little karaoke this Friday night. It's like, no, this is expected of you. You are going to join your cohorts your peers at the karaoke bar, not even just your peers. It's the great equalizer. You might even be joining your bosses there, or maybe even your boss's boss. You are going to go together to the bar and you are going to karaoke together. I mean, it's that important. So if all the bars are transitioning to karaoke, of course, that doesn't leave much place for the jukebox now, does it? Not very much. So this is the first of Konami's mini pivots. By 1973, it's clear that 
this jukebox root business is not going to be a sustainable business in the long term, that the jukebox is in its decline. And so these guys need to do something else. So at this point, they incorporate. There's some confusion uh, about whether the company was named Konami from its founding in 1969 or if it was named Konami here in 1973. There's a little bit of confusion in the English language sources. There may not be any confusion in Japan, but there's definitely confusion here. But either way, they incorporate in 1973 as Konami Industry Company. They set up a factory kind of on the edge of the Osaka area, and they decide to get into the latest craze sweeping the coin-op business. Because, of course, with the jukeboxes, they are in the coin-op business. And that craze is the metal game. We talked about the metal game. We did. That's where we can't do legal gambling. But I happen to have this guy over here on the side who has these lugs that he's willing to sell you for <laughs> 50 yen each. You can then take these slugs around the corner to a nice gambling CD air quote there that you can't see on an audio podcast. That's right. And from there, you can play pachinko or whatever else you want to play. And then, well, now you have excess slugs. Lucky for you, that nice man around the corner, he's going to buy those slugs back at for only 25 yen each. <laughs> yes, and, and not every place was a gray market gambling place. There were legitimate amusement game centers that did metal games as well, though absolutely what you're describing went on. This was a way of kind of experiencing the thrill of gambling without money changing hands, or if money was changing hands, doing it in this surreptitious way that allowed it to stay above board and legal according to the Japanese laws. The most popular metal machines were, were slot machines, converted slot machines that took these slugs instead of coins. There were also roulette machines and other gambling-related machines that were also categorized in this field of metal games. Uh, metal games really got their start. We talked in our Origin of the Game Center episode in 1971 when the owner of Sigma Enterprises created the first game center in order to house these metal games. And by 1973, this was something that was becoming very popular. So it's a logical place to get into. So Konami begins as a manufacturer in 1973, but they're not a manufacturer of coin-operated amusements. There are coin-operated amusements that are very prominent in Japan by this time, as we talked about. There are many companies that are in the amusement field. Konami is not one of them. As I said, their roots aren't really as a game company. They were in jukeboxes because that was something that seemed fairly lucrative at the time that they were starting the company. And then they were in metal games because that's something that seemed very lucrative at that time. And yes, metal games are a form of amusement, but they weren't doing the driving games. They weren't doing the target shooting games. They were a metal game company. That so this is, is primarily Pachinko. Well, not Pachinko. Pachinko's not a metal game. We're talking about converted slot machines and roulette machines and stuff like that. Not so pretty Pachinko. much any kind of coin-op thing that you can replace the coin with a slug. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so not particularly Pachinko or slots or anything else. Well, it's no, it the is whole slots. Thing. It is, well, Pachinko is not a metal game. Pachinko is something completely separate. Pachinko is played in pachinko parlors. That's a particular kind of place. And yes, there was gray market gambling going on with the pachinko as well. But pachinko was a game for ordinary salarymen to go and, and do whatever they're doing in pachinko halls. Metal games were an amusement. 
So there's actually a separation between the two. Exactly. Okay, so you don't really, you can't go to an amusement place and find a pachinko machine necessarily. Right. I mean, sometimes in a modern game center you can, but uh, in this period of time there weren't modern game centers. You had pachinko parlors, and that's where you went to play pachinko, and you had game corners that were attached to movie theaters, uh, department stores, supermarkets, roofs of department stores, that kind of thing, where you would have pinball tables and target shooting games and driving games and kind of what we consider coin-op amusements. And then you had this new metal game center that was particularly set up to be more casino-like and have casino-style games, but with slugs, not with real currency. So pachinko is, is not a casino game. That's not something that Japanese associate with casinos. They, they have their own pachinko parlors. So it's really a three-group thing. You have mm-hmm. pachinko, which is a unique thing unto itself. Yes. You have coin-operated amusement that actually take yen coins or whatever, ride mm-hmm. light gun shooting things. We've covered this before. Sure. And then we have what we traditionally view as the casino entertainment. So that's when you go to any kind of casino, you see slots, you see craps, you see mm-hmm. all sorts of and And we are things. talking about only coin-operated machines. So it's not like at a game center you could go play blackjack or go shoot craps. I mean, you're still talking about coin-operated machines, but it's the kind of coin-operated amusements that you would associate more with gambling rather than with amusement. So essentially the casinos in in the Dragon Quest series in a way. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, so to, so to speak. Yeah. You go in there, you have slot machines. There is a card table in there at least in some in, of them. In some of them, but but notice you use a special kind of currency when you, you do. go into the uh, casinos in those Dragon Quest games. You go in there, you give money and you exchange it for tokens mm-hmm. and these tokens can be used to gamble on the entire thing. And obviously, American casinos have a long history of using tokens, too. Of course. I'm not saying that that's unique, but, I mean, it's it's a little bit of that that, kind of atmosphere, you know. sort of shows in video games, they sort of take that Japanese culture of doing these metal games, these slug games, and showing that kind of cultural thing that everyone, at least in Japan, can relate to Mm -hmm. into a video game namely Dragon Quest, Mm -hmm. except you don't have the nice man around the street in order to take those tokens and turn them back into currency. You can only exchange them for goods and prizes. Fabulous prizes. So they're kind of their own thing. They're the first independent game centers. We talked about that. Amusements before metal games, because metal games are classified as an amusement. Amusements before metal games were found on the rooftops at department stores, in the gun corners at movie theaters, at the front of the supermarket, that kind of thing. This is the first time that you had game centers that were distinct and unique places of their own because the coin-operated amusements were never quite popular enough to justify that, where you could actually have a person owning an arcade and be able to keep up the rent on that arcade and make a living solely through the coin-operated amusements. And the pachinko parlors, I mean, pachinko is completely different. I mean, it's a completely separate thing. So this is the beginning, as we talked about in our Game Center episode, of kind of the Japanese Game Center as we think of it today as its own unique freestanding location. It just happened that it was through metal games because for a very brief period of time, metal games were insanely popular. I mean, really huge. There were thousands of these Game Centers opening in Japan. And remember, Japan's a pretty small country, so thousands may not sound like much in the context of the U.S. of A., but in the context of Japan, 
<laughs> it's a very small country with a very dense population. So that's that's really quite a lot. It's quite impressive. And so Konami gets in on this. And here's the key thing to remember about Konami. Even in the early 1980s, even after they've released their first video games, Konami still does not see itself as a video game company. Konami is a metal game company. That is the identity of the company, even after their first video games come out. And I I just want to emphasize that again. And this comes from interviews with developers at Konami in that period. Obviously not interviews I've done, uh, language barrier, but interviews that have been done. It's very clear that even in the 1982, 1983, 1984 time period, by which point they had been making video games for several years, their primary identity was still in kind of that metal game, casino-style game manufacturing. It took them a while to assume the identity, the prime identity of a video game company. And I just want to emphasize that because this goes back to the point that I was making at the very beginning, that while Konami has made many, many, many video games, and while there was certainly a period of time where Konami's prime identity was as a video game company, that was not in its DNA from the very beginning. Being a coin-operated amusement company outside of metal games, or being a, an arcade game company, or being a video game company, was not in the DNA, which makes it not surprising at all, quite frankly, that they would not feel wedded to that market long term. I mean, you take a company like Square Enix, and there was a period of time where it looked like Square Enix might be the only company that continued in AAA console development in Japan as their primary function. A couple of the others have pulled back a little bit now, too. But you take a company like Square Enix, and those companies were both founded, Square, Soft, and Enix, were founded as computer game companies. That was their origin in Japan. Both of the founders of those companies were involved in other businesses before they got involved in the computer game business. But the DNA of those businesses, Square and Enix, was very much in computer games. So they've stuck with that, even as it became harder and harder for Japanese companies to handle AAA console development for reasons that we've discussed a little bit in other episodes. That's a company that maintained a commitment to that field. Because that's kind of in their DNA. Capcom is another one. Capcom, Kinzo Tsujimoto, his family came out of the grocery business. But Tsujimoto, at a young age, decided that he wanted to be involved in amusements. And he got involved in pachinko and other amusements very early on in the the late 60s, early 70s. And so being in an amusement-style business, a business that caters to, to kids and whatnot was something that was very much in the DNA of Capcom from the very beginning. And so Capcom has continued in that field, and they are continuing to work with AAA development, even though they've kind of gone a little more heavy on mobile as well, because that's just where the the Japanese market has gone, quite frankly. Konami is an opportunistic company. We've already seen this. We've barely started on the history of Konami, but we've already seen this in its short history from 1969 into the late 70s, early 80s that this is an opportunistic company. They find a place where they have enough knowledge to pivot into that is a good moneymaker, and then they stay with that until that's no longer as good a moneymaker, and then they pivot. And we're going to see this constantly as they develop. So Mm -hmm. they started off as jukebox. That's starting to decline. Oh, slugs are profitable. Let's go to that. Mm -hmm. That starts to decline, and then we move into video games. Exactly. 
And that's exactly what they do. Metal games kind of peak in popularity in kind of the 74, 75, 76 time period. I think by that time, there's a slight market saturation problem, but there's also a bit of a, on second thought, maybe this is kind of a little bit like gambling. It it kind of saturates the market and it kind of starts getting a reputation. The metal game market kind of declines very quickly thereafter. Now, metal games, just like some of these others, metal games have never really disappeared. I don't know if they appear in Japanese Game Center still today, but I know at least in the 2000s, you could still find metal games. They kind of had a renaissance, really. They kind of made a comeback in, in the 2000s. It's one of these things that never go away. But I mean, there was a period of time when you had game centers full of nothing but these metal games. And after the mid-1970s, that kind of petered out. And that petered out just in time for the video game to become a big deal. We talked about this in our Japanese Game Center episode, that video games didn't really get popular in Japan, even though there were a few video games there. They didn't really get popular in Japan until Breakout. Breakout caused an absolute sensation for whatever reason. That just really resonated. It migrated out of game centers and rooftop spaces and whatnot into more mainstream venues. You started seeing them in bars, snack bars, tea houses, and these kind of locations. They did the whole cocktail cabinet cabinet thing that... We talked about this in our Game Center episode, but we also just talked about it in our Pong episode last time as well. In the United States, that process of pushing into high-quality lounges and hotels started in the like 1974-1975 period as a way of getting Pong into more upscale establishments. In Japan, it happened in the kind of 77-78 time frame, because they're always a little bit behind, for kind of the same purpose. And it was kind of the decline of the jukebox business again. Taito, uh, jukebox leaders, we said, and we talked about this in our Game Center episode too, saw the decline in their jukebox business and said, what can we do to maintain the business in the bars? And obviously one answer became karaoke, but that's also why they developed a cocktail cabinet to go into bars or a tabletop. They look a little different than the cocktail cabinets in the United States did. And they called them tabletop cabinets in Japan, but it's the same thing. That's how these video games started penetrating bars, snack bars, tea houses. And video games really start picking up in popularity over 77 and 78 on the back of this breakout craze. Breakout is copied slash pirated by everybody. As we talked, it's officially a Namco game because they have the Atari license. But Namco can't supply nearly enough copies for the demand. Atari's not giving them enough. And so a whole video game industry develops around it. Most of the major Japanese arcade game companies of the 1980s and 90s got into video games during the breakout era. And Konami was one of those. This is why Konami pivots. Konami sees that video games, these breakout games, are becoming a big deal. They see that their uh, metal game, (laughs) Bread and Butter, is kind of starting to fade. So while they don't get out of that business entirely, they, in 1978, transition into video games, just like all of these other Japanese coin-op companies of various types are doing. At this point, uh, just to back up slightly, there's another company that is involved with Konami throughout this period. It's caused some confusion. English language sources have gotten very confused. So Konami is a manufacturer. 
primarily manufacturing metal games, later on getting into video games. They are not a distributor like some of these other big companies. In Japan, the manufacturer kind of also serves as its own distributor a lot of times, as we talked about in our arcade episode. Mostly because they are a smaller operation, so they don't have to cover such a big area. And that's why you have the three-tiered system in the United States. It's because you have these giant geographical areas where you need to distribute those games. In Japan, it's small. We've said this. So I make a game. Shipping it across the country is not really that hard. Exactly. So Konami's manufacturing the games, but they don't have a sales capacity. This is not a market that they're too familiar with because they were in jukeboxes before. They don't have a sales capacity to get these games out. So in order to facilitate the beginning of their manufacturing, they actually make a deal with another company called the Lijak Corporation. Now, if you go to certain English language sites that are kind of interested in video game history. I'm not talking about scholarly sites, really, but some English language sites. You'll see them claim that Lijak Corporation was the original name of Konami when Konami was founded in 1969. I don't really know why these people came to that conclusion. I can't speak for them. Maybe some of the confusion stems from the fact that certain of the company's early video arcade games have the Lijak name on them instead of the Konami name on them, and that gets people to assume that one name predated the other. I don't know. But the Lijak Corporation is not that. It is not the original Konami. It was not a company founded by the Konami people. The Lijak Company instead was a partnership between two Japanese arcade owners, game center companies, two big ones. One was called Marusan Shokai, and they were based in Kobe, and the other was called Katu, K-A-T-O-U, Romanized, <laughs> obviously, it's Japanese, so. Uh, but Katu, which was based in Nagoya, uh, major guys, and they, they were operators. They operated arcades, and they wanted to get into the business of selling machines. So they knew the business, and they had the sales know-how, but they didn't have the product. Konami had the product, but they didn't have the sales know-how. So a match made in heaven. Exactly. So in 1975, Marusan Shokai and Katu created a joint company that they both had a stake in called Lejak, L-E-I-J-A-C. I may be pronouncing it wrong, but Lejak, Lejak, something like that. Then subcontracted Konami. So Konami became the official exclusive, I think exclusive, supplier of game machines, metal games, to Lijak. And then Lijak was the company that sold these machines to operators to place into arcades. So they kind of became a distributor in a way. I mean, this, this kind of setup, I think, was fairly unusual in Japan. I could be wrong, but I think it was. But it was just a an example of kind of two smaller companies in different areas of coin-op getting together and helping each other to become a bigger player in the Japanese coin-op business. And kind of interesting story there. And it kind of makes sense considering what Konami is. They want to make money. 
So if I can transition myself so that I don't have to worry about getting the product from point A to point B and selling that product and getting people to take it into their stores, all I have to worry about is making a good product and making sure my production is efficient. That means more money for me, ultimately. Absolutely. So then, about the time that Konami transitions into video games, 78-79 period, Marasan Shokai decides that they don't want to be involved in this anymore. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, they're, they're not comfortable in this partnership anymore. So they decide to get out of Lejok. And so they actually sell their stake in the company to Konami. So now Konami has become a half-owner of the Lajak Corporation. And then very soon after that, Katu also got out and sold their portion of the business to Konami. So at this point, Lajak becomes a subsidiary of Konami. This is 1979. So that's the point where Konami takes on the more traditional role of a Japanese coin-op company, where they are manufacturing their own machines and they are serving as the distributor, the sales arm for their own machines. And the way they came into that is very different than the typical way it was being done in Japan. Absolutely. And so the reason that some of the early, even early 1980s games that Konami put out actually have the Lajak name on them instead of the Konami name on them is because Lajak continues to exist as a separate entity, fully owned by Konami but a separate entity, and handles the sales of the games Konami makes. So some of those games are branded Lajak games because Lajak is the company that is actually putting them out into the marketplace after Konami manufactures them. That changes in September 1981. In September 1981, Konami reorganizes and sales is brought directly into Konami. So at that point, Konami is just Konami, and then they sell off Lijok. I mean, the company still exists. It's a shell company now, essentially. It doesn't have anything to do, but they sell the company, the name, the history, the incorporation, whatever. They sell the company along then in 1982 to a trading company that has nothing to do with video games. I mean, it's they're just selling the name, you know, and selling the brand. It's not a coin-op company. So that's when Lijok disappears. So there's confusion in the English language sources where they think that Lajak existed first and Konami was a subsidiary of Lajak or whatever. The truth of the matter is Konami existed first, then Lajak was formed by two completely different companies and Konami was their subcontractor. Then Lajak was sold to Konami and became a subsidiary of Konami for sales. And then finally sales was integrated into Konami and Lajak exits the picture entirely. So that's a, that's a kind of confusing situation, particularly in the English language sources. That's how Konami evolved into a full-service manufacturer, distributor in the same vein as a Namco or a Taito or a Sega, is through this intermediary company that existed for a few years. So in 80, late 81, they're now a full-fledged coin-op system. Exactly. Though at this point, they still primarily think of themselves, like I said, as a metal game company, because there are interviews with Konami employees, even in the 82-83 period, that are like, you know, kind of, were we a video game company? And it's like, no, they, they weren't really. Even though they were now making video games, the corporate identity hadn't really fully shifted there yet. But certainly Konami is now involved in the video game business, and they start by doing clones of other people's product like everybody starts out doing, really. 
then they finally start getting involved in kind of creating their own unique games in the kind of 1980-1981 time period. And the first very important game that Konami makes and the first big hit that they have is a game called Scramble. And this is a game that, boy, do I wish we knew something about. I'm not even sure there's anyone in Japan that knows about this game. The sad thing is that kind of the very first generation of Japanese video game programmers, and I'm talking about the guys that got involved in doing video games in the late 70s and early 80s. That generation comes from an older, even more traditional generation where you are working, it's a communal culture, you work for the company. The company is the entity that creates the product, that reaps the rewards of the product, that is the public face of the product in Japan, not the designers. I mean, there was a little of that obviously going on in the U.S. too, in the sense that Atari engineers originally didn't get credit for the games they made. But I mean, it's like that dialed up to 11 in Japan because of the communal culture. So. You, Mr. Salaryman, that is programming this game or designing this game or doing art for this game or doing sound for this game, are just a cog in the machine that is the corporation. And the product succeeds not because of you, Mr. Cog in the machine, but because your cog is attached to this cog, is attached to this cog, and is attached to this cog to create the harmonious whole that is the company. So it would be wrong to single out any individual cog for special recognition because we're a communal society. The entire group works for the good of the organization. Now, that's true in Japanese development even further on in the 80s, 90s, etc., etc., and even today to a large extent. But kind of the, the next generation, the young guys that are young guys in like 1982, 1983, 1984, and then continue on in the industry. Those guys generally get a little more recognition. At least we know who they are. And even if some of them are reluctant to speak too much on an individual basis, we can trace them and we can track them down. And they give interviews in particularly Japanese game magazines more than American magazines. And and you get a sense of the games they did and why they did them and et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't always make it into English language sources, but it quite often makes it into Japanese language sources. With a couple of exceptions, like uh, Gunpei Yokoi at Nintendo or Tomohiro Nishikado, the creator of Space Invaders at Taito, with just a couple of exceptions, you don't get that with this very first group. And I'm not just talking about Konami, I'm talking everywhere. This very first group was either largely out of the business or in very high upper management by the time the game designers started getting more recognition. So this group kind of faded into obscurity, and some of them may still be alive, certainly, but they never really talked about the games that they made. And this is a problem with several of the late 1970s and early 1980s Japanese game output. And unfortunately, it's a problem with Scramble, because Scramble is the very first shoot 'em up in the sense that we think of them today. Before Scramble, you had your fixed shooters. You had your Space Invaders, your Galaxian, etc., where you're at the bottom of the screen and you're blowing everything up. You had Defender. Defender didn't come out very long before Scramble did, but it came out 
right before Scramble did, which scrolled. You were shooting and scrolling, but you were scrolling within a fixed space. It's just that the game field was larger than a single screen. You could move back and forth as you're trying to shoot down the invaders and save all your people on the surface. Scramble was the first game where you are controlling a spaceship and the screen, the game is propelling you forward. There is forced scrolling. You've got targets on the ground and you've got spaceships flying at you and, and all of this stuff. And you're trying to avoid all this stuff and shoot all this stuff. And they're shooting back at you. It's the first shmup. It's the game that everything from Xevious to 1942 to Gradius to R-Type to Raiden to Thunder Force, etc. is is following in the footsteps of. So that makes it very important from an evolutionary standpoint. And unfortunately, we can't talk to the people who created this game as to why they made whatever the choices they were. Right. We have no idea how they decided on a science fiction or a space theme. We have no idea how they decided on forced scrolling. We have no idea how this all happened. It's unlikely they were influenced by Defender. Because Defender was the very first scrolling shooter. It's just that it's scroll within a fixed area rather than forced scrolling in one direction. Auto-scrolling like a traditional shmup. But Defender debuted at the AMOA show in fall 1980. And didn't really reach the market until like January 1981. Scramble was on the market by February 1981. So, I mean, it's always theoretically possible that they rejiggered something at the last moment after seeing Defender, but it's highly, highly unlikely because they they wouldn't have had time to create a whole game concept from scratch after seeing Defender. We've talked about before how Japan really doesn't change very quickly. They're very iterative. They're very... We already have this process going down. We're going to see it all the way through. So if they already had scrambled pretty much set up and ready to go and they're close to having it done just because there's some other new game that showed up, they're not going to re-kajigger the whole game just because of something new that came up because that's not how things are. We already have this cog in the machine that you already got the game going. It's already done. We believe in this product. It's going to get out the door one way or the other as it is. Sure. And so it's it's hard to believe that they could have come up with Scramble so quickly after seeing Defender. And I'm not saying that anyone's claimed that it was inspired by Defender. It's just that the first logical place to look for inspiration is, was there a scrolling spaceship shooter game before? And the answer is yes, there was one. And it was called Defender. But it was just, it was right before. This had to be parallel evolution. But that is one of the games, I mean, there are a few games we don't really know the origin of, but uh, of all of them, that is the game I would really like to know the origin of more than any other, because it's, it's the beginning of a whole huge genre in the video game industry. And it was a massive hit in the United States. Uh, it was put out by Stern Electronics because Konami is still a very small company. They certainly don't have an American branch at this point. They license it to Stern Electronics, uh, the go-between, because uh, I've talked to Gary Stern at Stern Electronics. Uh, the go-between was a guy named Barry Feinblatt, who was a big distributor in the United States, and he had contacts in Japan, and he had discovered Konami and discovered these Konami games, and then came over to the States and was showing them around and showed them to Gary Stern, and Gary Stern thought this scramble game looked pretty neat, and uh, they may have already had a couple others at that point, too, but thought these Konami games looked pretty neat, and so Stern did the deal and and released this in the United States. It sells something like uh, 10 or 15,000 units in like two months in the United States. 
That's pretty phenomenal. It's hot, hot, hot. I mean, this is, we are now post-Space Invaders, so we're in the heart of the Golden Age. So uh, a game selling 15 or 20,000 units is not as remarkable as it would have been two years ago. But it's still pretty darn good, especially to do it that fast. And it definitely spawns imitations. Uh, SNK in Japan does a game called Vanguard that's very similar. Universal. Again, we've talked about them before. This is not the motion picture company. This is a Japanese coin-op company. Universal puts out a game called Cosmic Avenger that is very similar. So it spawns clones. You know a game is successful in this business when it spawns clones, especially in the early days when games were much simpler and cloning meant more or less ripping off every element of it. Nowadays, with games being so complex, you can rip off a game while making it seem more different. Uh, Definitely a successful game. Uh, It was pirated heavily. There was a landmark court case, actually. Stern sued one of these companies that was releasing pirated versions of it and and won. That was kind of a landmark case in the fight against coin-op counterfeiters. So that's important. And, uh, you know, it was was just basically a big hit. So this, this was their entree in the video game business, their real entree. I mean, they were making a few, but this was when they were kind of put on the map. And, and this is primarily them doing arcade video games. They haven't done right. any kind of console video games or dedicated console or anything else. This is purely arcade video game. That's right. But this is the beginning of them starting to become a video game company. It's kind of at this point that they start hiring more people to do video games. Their identity isn't there yet. This is the transition period. And they have some games that do very well, and they have some games that they start and then they don't finish, and they have other games that they release and don't do as well. They're a scramble aside. They're largely doing knockoffs of the concepts of other companies. So after Pac-Man's big, they release a maze game, Amadar, just like everyone releases a maze game and 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 stuff like that. I mean, they're not they're not straight copies. Amadar plays very differently than uh, for instance, than, than Pac-Man did. You know, they're, they're not really scramble aside. They're not really a leader yet. But this is the period where they're finding their feet, where they're figuring out who they are as a video game company. At the same time, they're also starting to look for opportunities to expand into other areas because the, this is proven profitable. So they're very early in getting onto computer games for a Japanese arcade company because the arcade companies aren't really paying attention to the home market. The very early Japanese computer game companies are almost exclusively companies that are founded specifically around computer games. They're founded by hobbyists and hackers, or even if they're not founded by those people, they're, they're founded by a businessman who then starts finding a bunch of hobbyists and hackers to make games for them. It's not the coin-op companies paying attention, but Konami gets involved very early. According to their corporate timeline, they, they released their first computer games in 1982, which is very early for the uh, Japanese market. And they're on the MSX from the very beginning in 1983. They are big on the MSX. MSX was an attempt by a company called ASCII Corporation in partnership with Microsoft uh, Japan, because Kei Nishi of ASCII was actually kind of close to, to Bill Gates. They were kindred spirits. This was a an attempt by them to create a hardware standard similar to the VHS standard in video cassettes. It's hard to, you know, most people probably don't remember or or, our younger listeners certainly wouldn't have even lived through it. 
that tape recording, <laughs> many of our long, younger listeners haven't even <laughs> lived through tape recording, period. <laughs> but even people our age didn't really live through the format wars in VCR. Sony came out with the first home video cassette recording system or videotape recording system. They called them VTRs back then, not VCRs. I don't, they, they may not have come out with the very first one, but they came out with the, the first one that was popular, which was Betamax. It was a very good format. I mean, higher, a high quality format. You couldn't, I think because of the high quality, you couldn't quite fit as much as on a single tape, but, but it was a good format. And so Sony looked set to dominate the, the VCR field, the VTR field because of this. And so a consortium of Japanese companies came together. Some of the other big companies like uh, Matsushita and whatnot came together and created a standard of their own called VHS. Mm -hmm. Even though in a lot of ways, Betamax was a superior product, Betamax got buried because the VHS consortium could really undercut them on price because there were a whole bunch of companies kind of sharing in this. And it was a standard. There's a uh, video that comes to mind that I'll throw in a show note where a uh, guy called the engineer guy goes over the differences between Betamax and VHS and muses on why VHS won versus the Betamax. He actually shows both devices and how really Betamax is superior in every which way. But VHS ended up being the one to win because of certain, at least in his mind, certain engineering choices. Yes. Now, there, there was one way in which VHS, at least initially, was superior, and that is that you could fit more on a single tape. So for people taping a bunch of stuff off of television who didn't really care if it was the highest quality possible, the capacity thing ended up you know, being a real plus for a consumer that didn't care about top-notch video quality. But the main thing was the business decisions, because Sony ended up isolated and alone on Betamax, and a whole consortium of companies came together and crushed them with a cheaper product on VHS. And so MSX was an attempt to do the exact same thing in computers. They got a bunch of Japanese companies together, and ironically, Sony was one of them. <laughs> uh, they got a bunch of Japanese companies together, and one European company, Philips, got in on it as well in the Netherlands. Got all of these companies together, and the idea was to create a VHS-like standard for computers uh, because you had all of these competing platforms at the time. It never came together. It, it never became that dominant platform. I mean, the MSX continued to exist as a platform throughout the 80s, and there was some success to it in Japan and in the Netherlands, never really in the United States. Even in Japan, it never replaced Sharp's proprietary machines or Next proprietary machines, and it certainly never made any inroad in the United States uh, with Apple and Commodore and Atari, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Radio Shack. In that sense, it was a failure, but it was an interesting experiment, and it was out there, and Konami was on that very early. They had an MSX division from about the very beginning, and again, that was very early for a coin-op company. Certainly, all the coin-op companies got involved on home computer and console as time went on, but Konami was there very early, and again, this goes back to the core of what Konami is. Konami is a company that looks for a new growth area within an existing competency and kind of expands into that area. And if that area ends up becoming more profitable and their other area that they're already in fades away entirely, they cut off that fading area and embrace the new area full force. 
So now we have arcade games really popular. We're not sure where things might transition to. So let's explore a little bit of this home computer option and explore a little bit of this home console option. Precisely. So Konami continued its relationship with Stern for a couple of years, released a lot of games through them. But particularly with Scramble, they were very disappointed at the copying situation. I mean, it wasn't Stern's fault. They didn't blame Stern. But they were disappointed with that. And they had another game coming up that they thought would be a pretty big hit. And that one, they decided not to go through Stern. They wanted to go through a larger company that could hopefully manufacture enough, I guess. I mean, I'm speculating a little bit here, but manufacture enough to kind of get ahead of the copiers. In 1981, it's not Stern, but Sega that releases a little game called Frogger. Frogger is another game that I wish we knew the origins of. We don't, because obviously that was also a, a huge hit. So, you know, they have Scramble and Frogger in the same year. That's, uh, that's pretty darn good. So Konami is really uh, looking up and they go ahead. They get an investment from a small business organization in Osaka because uh, they're based in Osaka. And they found a U.S. subsidiary for the first time in 1982. They found uh, Konami America, Konami USA, or whatever they call it, not important, in 1982 in the Chicago area. A lot of Japanese companies that found American subsidiaries found them on the West Coast because it's closer (laughs) to Japan. But a couple of them, they're not the only one, Taito does the same thing, found them in Illinois in the Chicago suburbs because that's the heart of the American coin-op industry. So you can see that Konami still at this point very much sees himself as a coin-op company because they're founding their U.S. subsidiary in the heart of the Japanese coin-op industry and not necessarily in the heart of the new American video game industry in Silicon Valley. But at this point, they're not releasing their own games yet. They're still licensing their games to American companies. After about 1982 is, I think, the last time Stern releases anything, they start investing heavily in Centauri. They actually do a small investment. They invest about, uh, they buy about 5% of the shares, I think. Centauri is actually Allied Leisure. We talked about Allied Leisure last time in our Pong episode. Basically, Allied Leisure falls apart in about 1979, 1980, and a new group of investors come in and buy Allied Leisure, and they decide that the Allied Leisure name is no good anymore. It's a company was often derided in the coin-op industry as Allied Loser. (laughs) because they had just a reputation for not doing very well. And so that name was kind of shot. And so they came up with the name Centauri as a new name to kind of restart the brand fresh. But it's essentially Allied Leisure. And so then they start releasing their games through there. And it's Centauri that releases the next big hit, which is Track and Field. Pressing those two buttons back and forth, back and forth. That was quite simply inspired by the 1984 Olympics were coming up. And so they were thinking about maybe we can do a game that has human versus human competition instead of human versus CPU. And then combining that with the upcoming 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, they put all that together and they created track and field. So that comes out in 1983 in the United States through Centauri. With the video game crash, they start taking a larger role in their own affairs, as a lot of Japanese companies do. It comes to the point where the American manufacturers are all hurting and can't necessarily put out all these Japanese games anymore. And so on about 1984 or 1985, I'm not sure which, they actually buy a company called Interlogic. We talked a little bit about Interlogic 
in our arcades after the crash episode. This was one of those kit companies that sprung up around the time of the crash where, okay, it's too expensive and there's too much market saturation to do full-sized arcade cabinets anymore. We'll just manufacture PC boards that can fit into existing cabinets that are already on the market as a refurbishing kind of thing and just release those instead because they're a lot cheaper and they make use of existing cabinets. And We'll reuse the wood, we'll slap on some new pretty pictures, and here's a new circuit board. And Interlogic was one of these companies founded by an Israeli national named Ben Harel, who had come to the United States for school and stayed, <laughs> and ended up getting involved in this coin-op industry through Interlogic. Konami buys Interlogic, and Ben Harel becomes the president of Konami of America, or Konami USA, whatever they called it. This is the point where Konami starts looking into making its own games in the United States, not licensing through other companies anymore. And this is also about the time that the NES is coming out in the United States. Konami, as I said, was very early on the MSX. They were very early into computer games. They were also very early onto the Famicom in Japan. They were not the first company on. Hudson Soft and Namco were the very first companies to get involved. But by 1985, Konami is, is doing very well and is becoming a big enough company that they jump onto the Famicom market and are one of the very early companies that get involved as well. That's very important to their growth. In Japan, the Famicom peaked in 1986. We think of the NES as being this thing that carried on forever and ever in the late 80s. Certainly, it continued to be successful in Japan after 1986. It was still the best-selling console after 1986. But the peak was 1986. And so the companies that got in in 84, 85, 86, those very first companies, are the games that reaped the most reward because there were fewer game companies, there were less market saturation. And so this was a period of time when everything was selling and there were very few companies. And so you could make a huge profit. Most of Japan's million sellers on the Famicom come from the 84, 85, 86 period. I mean, the big Nintendo franchises continue selling multi-millions after that, and of course Dragon Quest does. There are games that do, but a lot of them come in this 84, 85, 86 period. So they get in early, and they make a lot of money there, and they're very eager to get involved at the very beginning in the United States as well. They establish a console division in Konami USA very early on. And they bring in a guy with experience at Mattel and Mindscape and several other companies named Emil Heidkamp to run that. By the mid-1980s, they are clearly now a video game company. I mean, that is, that is their identity now. They've built up enough in that area that they really are a video game company now. They're no longer this kind of arcade company, kind of gambling game company. Whatever, it's, it's a video game company. And they're putting out product in arcade. They're putting out product on PC. They're putting out product on consoles. Exactly. They're in all three places, and they're very successful in all three places. In the arcade, the next big thing to come along is Gradius. And we do know about the origins of that game. <laughs> you know, Scramble was the first horizontal scrolling shooter. Gradius is kind of the first definitive horizontal scrolling shooter. Because after Scramble, really the market goes towards vertical shooters. We talked about how on, in our Namco episode what a big hit Xevious was. Xevious was huge in Japan, and Xevious spawned a lot of imitators. And so the vertically scrolling, top-down, 
moving from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen, vertical scrolling shoot 'em ups became the big thing. Designers at Konami looked at that and they said, We want to do for the horizontal shooter because they'd done one before what Xevious did for the vertically scrolling shooter. And so they started a project that was initially codenamed Scramble 2, but was never really a sequel to Scramble. And it was a whole new team. The people that were involved in this were not involved in Scramble. They were transitioning at the time to their first 16-bit arcade system, much more powerful than what they'd been using before. They decided that the best way to showcase that was to really make the best horizontally scrolling shooter they could, something that revolutionized horizontally scrolling shooters as much as Xevious several years prior had revolutionized vertically scrolling shooters. And so they create this game, Gradius. Uh, They're heavily influenced by Star Wars and another movie that came out at about that time called Lensman in kind of the aesthetic of it. They really wanted to create kind of a homogenous setting for it, which was kind of new in shooting games. They were influenced by these movies. And then the other thing they wanted to do is they really wanted to create a progression for the player. At the time, shooter games didn't really have power-ups. There might be occasionally something you could pick up to wipe all the enemies off the screen or something like you had in Galaga where you could get two ships and have twice the firepower, that kind of thing. But there weren't really power-ups in the sense that you had different weapons and your weapons got more powerful as you progressed through the game. That really hadn't infiltrated shooters yet. They thought that was kind of boring, and so they took inspiration from the RPGs that were coming out. Uh, This is pre-Dragon Quest, but computer RPGs were becoming a big thing. So computer RPGs introduced this idea of a progression system to Japanese gaming. And so they brought this back in to their shooter and had an upgrade system where over time you could make choices of different upgrades to make to your ship, and your ship would become more powerful. So Gradius is really the beginning of uh, a power-up system in shooting games as we know it. Not too surprisingly, really, it came out of the RPG market, which was already based around improving your character and improving your stats and improving your weapons over time. So that's a huge hit. Uh, It's a big thing, and it spawns uh, competitors like R-Type and Darius and whatnot, other horizontally scrolling shooters. So they've got their big arcade hit. In the MSX, the interesting thing that happens is of course, our our good friend Hideo Kojima, who really wanted to be in films, but realized he wasn't going to be able to do that and discovered that with game creation, he could get kind of close to doing that. He played games, he was interested in games, and so he moved away from his film aspirations and decided to do video games instead. Since he was really a film buff and a film student at heart, of course, his games became very narrative-heavy games because... Extremely so. Yes. There's a time when you play any Metal Gear and you should go make a bag of popcorn or something because you're going to set in for some nice long exposition. Well, and of course, Metal Gear Solid 4 very infamously has a 90-minute cutscene. So <laughs> you are going to watch a movie, so you better make that a large popcorn <laughs> And maybe a sandwich on the side. (laughs) Exactly. Though obviously his early games weren't quite as big as that, but he was assigned to the MSX division, which he really didn't want to be in because the MSX division was was kind of the least. I mean, the arcade is the most cutting-edge technology, so that's really the hot division. NES, Famicom, not quite so hot, but 
it's the best selling and most interesting home platform out there, even if it's not as powerful. MSX, not even as powerful as a Famicom and, you know, of course, nowhere near the market penetration. So that was kind of the dregs. And he almost quit in the first year. The first game he worked on didn't ship. Uh, he was unhappy. Finally, uh, a senior in the company helped him get his own game project and, and push that through and get that off the ground. He was assigned to do a shooting game for the MSX because that's, uh, that's a popular area. But the MSX could have very few objects on the screen at the same time. You couldn't really do a shmup very well or a run and gun very well just because of the limitations of the hardware. So he's thinking to himself, I'm supposed to be making a run and gun, a shooter type game, but I can't have bullets flying everywhere all the time. So how do I do that? Well, the answer is you have very little shooting going on. So why in a shooting game would there be very little shooting going on? Because I am a special forces agent infiltrating a base and I need to sneak around and only shoot at people very rarely when it's absolutely necessary. So that's how you get the foundation of Metal Gear. It's not that he was going for a stealth game from the very beginning. It, it literally arose out of the limitations of the hardware. How do I make a shooter where there's no shooting? Or very, very little shooting. Precisely. Then, of course, obviously, because he's this film buff and film student, I mean, he concocts this entire narrative around it as well. So he gets a deeper narrative going than a game at the time. I mean, this is no Metal Gear Solid on the narrative front, but it's still much deeper than your typical shooting game, which is just, you are super soldier. There is enemy. Go shoot enemy. <laughs> you know. Though it sort of starts off that way. Well, yes, though some of that is actually, it's interesting. The whole intro portion on the NES game was added to the American NES release when it was ported to the NES, and that was not Kojima. Kojima did not oversee the port of the MSX game to the NES. That segment is actually not in the original game, the very early infiltration when you're moving through the jungle and, and whatnot. Yeah, I've heard that before. The actual game is the first base thing you enter, and then that's where things really start. Exactly. So that's part of the reason why in your American game it seems more generic-y. <laughs> it really starts off as a, this is Gray Fox, go slaughter things and rescue people. Okay, standard game opening, and then you continue on through the game and you're, wait, what? Yes. And then, you know, 30-year-old spoilers, you discover that your boss that has been feeding you all of these instructions is actually the main bad guy. What a twist. That won't go on and on and on in that series. <laughs> Twists in Metal Gear? Lies and deceptions? What madness is this? You're telling me that despite what the trailer says, you, you don't play Solid Snake through the entirety of Metal Gear Solid 2? No, obviously, because the entire <laughs> thing is you start off on the ship, and it continues on through the rest of the game, and it's really, oh, a 30-minute game, if that. Raiden's a character in Mortal Kombat, right? He's the Thunder God in Mortal Kombat. That's the only Raiden in video games, right? Right. And that's why there's a Raiden that runs around in Metal Gear for a while and electrocutes people. Yes. No. I, I'm sure that must have never happened. Uh, Metal Gear is a, a solid snake game. Definitely a solid snake game. We may have biases in this room. <laughs> so obviously that's a tangent. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's based on, you know, elaborate unfolding stories and plot twists. So even the first one is, even though it's much more limited. 
Then on the NES, they are on board very early and they get involved in licenses very early, which is very interesting. The first license they did was Goonies, of all things. They did uh, two Goonies games. They did Goonies and Goonies 2. I don't know how that originated. I've talked to Emil Heidkamp, but Goonies predates Emil Heidkamp. Under Emil Heidkamp, Economy of America, they really got involved in licenses. Emil Heidkamp had been involved very heavily in the uh, computer game side of the business before he came to Konami. I'm talking about the United States now. I'm not talking about doing MSX with Konami. I just mean in, in the United States. He knew that the, uh, the flight simulator kind of games were exceedingly popular on the computer platform. We talked about F-15 Strike Eagle and what a huge hit it was when we did our Sid Meier episode not too long ago. But that hadn't really been done yet on the Famicom, on the NES. And it just so happened that a little movie called Top Gun had come out not so long ago. It was already released. This was after that, but uh, not too long ago, still pretty fresh. And so he saw an opportunity here. He was like, this is a genre that hasn't been done really on the Famicom. And there's this movie property And it was the biggest movie in America that year, I believe, the top grossing movie. I mean, a huge movie property that is perfectly positioned to give us that kind of extra boost. So he called up uh, the person at Paramount that was in charge of licensing and made a tentative deal to do that license. Tentative because he has to get final approval from Kazuki. It just so happens that this time, Kazuki is in Chicago because they're moving to a brand new building. They built a brand new, very nice building, and they're inaugurating it. So Kazuki's in town. Kazuki always used a translator. The word was that Kazuki hated these kind of flying games. He was not a fan at all. So Heidkamp knew that he'd have kind of maybe an uphill battle to get this approved. So they go through their tour and their meeting and everything else. And uh, as Emil tells it, at the very end, uh, after they've talked about everything, Kazuki, through his interpreter, says, so is there anything else we should talk about? And so at this point, Emil Heidkamp brings it up. He's like, well, I've kind of got this deal going for, and he's saying this in English, of course, for a game based on Top Gun. And at this point, Kazuki lights up. Because the thing is about a lot of these Japanese uh, business moguls, they know a lot more English than they'll let on. They use an interpreter sometimes even when they don't need an interpreter. It's kind of a power thing, I think. And so, like, Kazuki immediately lights up and is like, oh, Tom Cruise. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that just sells the whole thing right there. And so he's like, okay, let's do this. But our programmers in Japan don't know the first thing about doing a game like this because this flight simulator kind of thing. And obviously on the Famicom, on the NES, this is not going to really be a flight simulator in the same way that an F-15 Strike Eagle was a flight simulator on the computer at that level of realism, but it's still going to have a little bit of that kind of stuff going on. And so he says, so if we're going to do this, you're going to need to come over and help define this game. I mean, Emil Heidkamp's not a programmer. He's not a game designer either. Uh, He's not expected to program it. But they want him to come over and define the game, work with the programmers in Konami to define the game. And so he does. He buys up every Commodore 64 flight sim he can find, like F-15 Strike Eagle and Fighting Falcon and all those kind of games, brings them with him to Japan and works with the programming team in Japan to kind of define how to create this Top Gun video game. And ends up being a massive hit. Uh, it may have sold as much as a couple million copies. Uh, sales figures in this period are really hard to come by, but it's, it's definitely a big hit. Even though you may have some difficulty landing on that carrier. 
Yes, I see you are familiar with the game Top Gun. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yes, the carrier landing is a rather infamous portion. <laughs> but once you understand the mechanics of how they actually designed it, it actually is intuitive and makes sense. Right. But it's not something that they sit down and explain to you. This is how you land on a carrier. So for the average kid, it's really hard to figure out. Precisely. So that becomes a big hit. And at that point, Kazuki uh, places a lot of faith in Heidkamp to pursue other licenses. I mean, Heidkamp was hired basically to be the sales guy on the console end. He wasn't hired to be a licensor per se. But after that first success, there's a lot of interest in letting him do more of that. Our friend Mr. Heidkamp is at CES. I don't know if it's winter or summer CES. They're two CES shows. It's not important. And our friend Emil Heidkamp needs to go to the bathroom, as people often do. So Emil Heidkamp brings in some reading material with him to the bathroom. The magazine that he brings in has uh, some information on this new thing called the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Hmm. Which apparently is starting to become popular with the kids actually not even really becoming popular with the kids at this point, uh, because, of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started out as a pretty dark, hardcore thing. Oh, the comic is really, really dark. And especially the original comic, the very first black and white. That's what I'm referencing. Exactly. And, uh, you know, they actually kill Shredder in that. (laughs) Yeah, the first, the very first comic, they kill Shredder pretty violently, and then... On to comic number two. Exactly. He's not an ongoing antagonist. It's, oh, he's this bad guy. Now he's brutally murdered. Well, he's a bad guy. I guess you can't murder him. Yes. We'll leave that up to uh, <laughs> nerd court. Right. Um, and we're going to go on with whatever else we're doing. Right. But there was this guy, this licensing guy named Mark Friedman. And Mark Friedman saw this initial... Eastman and Laird comic, this underground success. And he immediately saw that this is something that if it was just softened just a little bit, would be perfect as a children's property. So he he worked with with Eastman and Laird or whatever to kind of rebrand this thing. And he started shopping it around and Hasbro and Mattel turned him down. Didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, so a little toy company called Playmates, a nothing company, decides to, to take a flyer on this. As we know, of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just became an absolute phenomenon in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, it was everywhere. It was huge. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the toilet paper. Teenage Mutant <laughs> Ninja Turtles, the sheets. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the light bulb. (laughs) Merchandising, merchandising. But at this period of time, this is still early in the process. Uh, And you see, at the time, Konami as a company was very interested in doing a martial arts game. And they'd done some martial arts games. We talked about ER Kung Fu that they did uh, in 1985 that laid some of the groundwork for some of the concepts that would later appear in Street Fighter. But they they were always too late to the market. Other companies, whether they be Data East or American Technos or Capcom, always seemed to be just a little bit ahead of them on the martial arts front. But there there was still a lot of interest in Japan in doing a martial arts game. Heidkamp knew this. And so when he saw this Tangent Ninja Turtles thing, he was like, 
here's a fresh way to do a martial arts game because it's martial arts, but the characters are so different and so wacky. And this is something that can stand out. If, if we're too late to the party to stand out in martial arts on mechanics, we're not necessarily too late to stand out in presentation and in character. So he immediately kind of forms this connection in his mind between Konami's desire to be in martial arts and the Ninja Turtles' unique martial arts property. So he calls up Mark Friedman. And Mark Friedman is so happy to hear from him because Mark Friedman is in this phase still where he's trying to sell this product wherever he can. And he's having trouble getting licensees in various areas. He is thrilled to death to make a deal with Konami. And so that's how Konami gets the the Ninja Turtles franchise. Heidkamp really facilitates this. Of course, the first Ninja Turtles game on the NES, for all of its weirdness and difficulty and faults and what have you, Everything that happens after the dam. Yes. Is massive. Massive. Because it comes out in 1989, and this is right when turtles are just hitting big, like really big. So the demand is through the roof. They sell like 4 million copies of it, just in the U.S. alone, I believe. And that that is huge. I mean, an NES game is, I mean, there are a lot of million selling NES games. You know, 2 million is a phenomenal hit on the NES. We're talking double that. Uh, yep. You know, especially for a third party publisher like Konami. Four million is insane. I mean, that is that is easily one of the biggest third party hits on the NES. And it really launches Konami into the stratosphere. It's not the only successful property they have. Castlevania, of course, is coming along around this time. I'd say more about it, except that that's another game where the origin of it is kind of obscured and we have no idea what the origin was. But Castlevania was a big hit, a big enough hit. Top Gun was a big hit. They licensed Skate or Die from Electronic Arts because Electronic Arts was not in the console business at this period of time. And Skate or Die did pretty good. So they had a lot of properties doing well. And one of my favorite games, that's actually a sports game, Blades of Steel. Absolutely. That's a good game. Double Dribble, the basketball game. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles really dwarfs all that. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the game that really or the franchise, the property that allows Konami to become the number one third-party publisher by revenue on the NES. I mean, they are number one. So really their profit thing, if we're going back to where we started here, that shifting thing, they mm-hmm. were in big in arcade, and now they've shifted again so that they're really big into consoles because that's where the money is, especially after this steal. Exactly. And they certainly don't leave the arcade. They have several arcade hits. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game, becomes one of the biggest games that anyone has seen in years. Its market penetration is huge in terms of how many locations. I mean, everyone has to have a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game. And boy, do I, I mean, I remember when my local fun factory in, in Mililani, Hawaii, got their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game. And we talked about that a little bit in our personal history episode, I think. I mean, that was a huge deal. Was yours a two-player or a four-player? It was the four-player. It was definitely the four-player. I mean, that was a huge deal. So they've got a huge moneymaker in the arcade, and they also have a huge moneymaker in the home. They've become huge. Of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the home is not released under the banner of Konami. It is released under the banner of a company called Ultra. And what Ultra is, is Konami, just with a different name. The reason for this, we have talked about before with Nintendo and their interesting practices of every company is allotted so many games. Five. 
five per year. Yep. You cannot exceed that. Exactly. However, for certain companies, we can have this little hush-hush deal where you spend the money, you rebuy a new subscription with us. Mm -hmm. New license. Yep. And you may now publish five new games under some other name. Really, they probably would have allowed just about anybody to do that. We talked a little bit about with Nintendo. It feels so restrictive today to limit companies to five games per year. But the truth of the matter is, with the expense of creating a cartridge game, very expensive. Therefore, the need for each of your games to at least be halfway decent. I'm not saying they have to be brilliant. There are plenty of shovelware on the NES, but at least halfway decent, either in terms of the gameplay or in terms of the license, if you have terrible gameplay. There were a lot of companies that really could not come up with more than five games to release in a year because these companies don't want to dilute their own sales. For most companies, five games a year was enough. I think companies were probably far more annoyed by the need to let Nintendo manufacture all the cartridges themselves and by the exclusivity clause that stopped them from releasing the games on other platforms. They were probably far more annoyed by that than the five games a year thing. Because quite frankly, most of them wouldn't go beyond two or three games a year anyway. A lot of them were small companies. But for a company like Konami, that's very big in Japan and has really reaped the benefits of being on the Famicom early in Japan and made a lot of money on the Famicom. For a company like that, five games is very restrictive. Not only do they want to release more of their own games, their own arcade conversions in the West, But they're a big enough company that they feel that they can license games from other companies like Electronic Arts and release those games, too. So they're chafing. They're one of the companies that's really chafing under this five games a year thing. Finally, it's there's no big drama to it. Um, You know, Emil Heidkamp told me the story. Basically, he said that, you know, he's basically talking to Howard Lincoln at Nintendo and was like, you know, this this five games a year thing is uh, kind of restrictive. And, you know, Howard Lincoln says something about, I suppose someone could found another company and, you know, release, uh, release more games. And, you know, Emil Heidkamp was kind of like, uh, well, what, what would happen if somebody tried to do that? And Howard Lincoln, being kind of coy, was like, I don't know, maybe you should found another company and find out. See what happens. I mean, Howard Lincoln knows what's going to happen because he's at Nintendo, <laughs> but mm-hmm. he's being kind of coy. Um, maybe you can find out. So Konami founds Ultra Games. The Konami building was at a, was on a corner, was at an intersection. So the Konami address was the main entrance of the building that they were in on the one street. And the Ultra Games address was the side entrance to the building on the cross street. They're exact same place. And it is technically a separate subsidiary. Emil Heidkamp uh, remains a VP at Konami and becomes the president of Ultra Games. And Ultra Games purchases a second Nintendo license, a second license to release games on the NES. And now suddenly they can release 10 games a year. Victory. And uh, Metal Gear is, I think, the first game released under the Ultra Games name. And it does all right. But then Turtles is released under the Ultra Games name. And oh, yes, indeed. That may have sold a few. Yes. So now they're this they're the super duper powerhouse. That's kind of where they are at this juncture. In the 8-bit era, in the 16-bit era, they are one of the top companies on the console platforms. 
that's in some ways the high watermark for Konami. I mean, it's probably not the high watermark in terms of profits, but it's it's certainly the high watermark in terms of prestige. They have a lot of successful arcade games. They have a lot of successful home games. They're number one. They have a huge international presence. Certainly they're high mark as far as video games go. Yeah, exactly. In the 90s, it kind of slowly unravels in stages, I guess you could say. And I mean, they never unravel as a company. I mean, they're still a successful company today. But I think that's kind of why they they turned away ultimately from games. And I have fewer sources and, and fewer information on kind of this period. So we'll kind of cover this more quickly uh, than we cover the early days. But in the arcade, they were the master at the beat-em-up genre. They had multiple successful games. The Turtles game was one. They had the crazy X-Men game where they even, as we talked about before, had a six-player cabinet. They had a Simpsons game that was very popular. It's interesting. They had the coin-op rights, and Acclaim had the uh, console rights. And the reason for that is uh, they got in on the Simpsons very early, and Kozuki didn't want to get all of the rights. It would have been more expensive, and I guess he probably wasn't certain that this would really be a hit. And so they just started with the coin-op rights and and let the uh, console rights slip away from them. Uh, and the, the arcade game did very well, but obviously if they had had those console rights, they would have made even more money. And maybe um, the NES Simpsons game might have been a little better. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, Acclaim really wanted to license the coin-op game to make a home version of it as well. Because the, the Simpsons games that came out on the consoles had no relation to the coin-op game. Kazuki flat out refused to license. And I don't know if that's because he was bitter about the fact that they didn't end up with that license. You know, if I can't profit off of home games, nobody will or what have you. But that's you why you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. But that's why the Simpsons arcade game was never converted. And the Simpsons arcade game was a beat em up. It wasn't like the uh, console games. And it's because Kazuki didn't want to do it. And maybe that's because he was kind of sad that they didn't have those rights that they could very well have had if they had chosen to. So they're doing these games, uh, these beat-em-ups, and they're experiencing a lot of success with that. And Street Fighter 2 comes out and just completely crashes that market. We covered that one. And that really sends Konami reeling on the arcade side of things. This is the period of time when we talked about how the console transition didn't go really well either. Konami actually loses money there for a couple of years in the uh, in the early 90s. It's... Not the transition from 16-bit to 32. That's correct. Between the arcade woes and the, tr- and the transition in the uh, consumer business, they have a couple of years where they don't do as well, and they kind of recede from the arcade a bit. They finally make a comeback. Of course, they do the Bimani games, which are huge. <laughs> the rhythm games, uh, most notably Dance Dance Revolution. Uh, and those are huge. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal in the late 90s arcade. But they kind of pull back a little bit there. And uh, the transition's a little rough, and that's kind of the beginning of kind of uh, taking the guild off the lily, so to speak. This is a period when the Western companies are becoming more involved, and so Acclaim and Electronic Arts kind of start leapfrogging them in the home in the United States. This is by no means the end of Konami's success, but it's kind of the end of Konami being the top dog. From then on, they, they start being reduced a little more. They actually look into making their own console briefly. A lot of the arcade companies do that. SNK, of course, released the Neo Geo, but a lot of other companies were looking into it, and Konami looked into doing their own console for a while and decided that that wasn't very feasible. They stick it out on console, and they have some big hits. They most famously reinvent Castlevania 
as a Metroid-style exploration game with Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Very, very popular to this day game. Mm -hmm. They backed the PlayStation, I think probably a little hesitantly. Konami was very loyal to Nintendo. In the SNES era, they waited a long time to get on Genesis. Uh, They remained NES exclusive for a long time. They remained kind of loyal to Nintendo during the N64 period as well. And part of the reason the Castlevania Symphony of the Night kind of got away with doing what it did is they were more focused on the, the management was more focused on the, the N64 game that was going to come out that ended up being you know, a mess. Really bad. And so the, the developers on the PlayStation game were not huge fans of Simon Belmont and the whole whip-wielding thing, and so wanted to get away from a Simon Belmont protagonist, and that's why they did Alucard. They liked the Metroid-style gameplay, and they were looking to make something that was a little longer and more immersive as a console game because it doesn't have to be fast action like an arcade game, and so they came up, come up with doing the Metroid-style thing and, and making this whole game. And they kind of get away with it a little bit because they're not the focus of attention in the Castlevania area. Obviously, it becomes a massive hit, and then it becomes the template for what a Castlevania game is after that. I mean, that becomes the new Castlevania template. So that that's great. Um, and they have some other things. They do their first role-playing game series, Sukaden, um, which does fairly well, especially the first couple of games in Japan. So they're still kind of there, but at this point, Kozuki is transitioning again he's getting interested in the slot machine business and he actually gets konami into the slot machine business we're not talking metal games now we're talking about full-on gambling so they've kind of got that going on they've still got the console stuff going on uh metal gear solid obviously does really well silent hill does really well i mean this is this is a golden age for creativity at konami absolutely the playstation era definitely they put out very iconic games you know, they're no longer top dog in the field. And as the Japanese industry becomes more and more diminished vis-a-vis the American industry, there isn't the same will, I think, on the behalf of management to stay in there. And so they start focusing on these other areas more and more. And from the management standpoint, they're seeing we have a history of these things rise and fall. Jukebox rise and fall. Slugs rise and fall. Maybe video games have gone pretty big and pretty high for us, especially since we have this sort of three-pillar thing of arcade, consoles, and PC. We see this thing falling. We need to find where we're transitioning to. Right. And so when the arcade starts to decline, they have a huge hit with the Dance Dance Revolution and all of that. But when the arcade starts to decline again after that in the early 2000s, they're quick to get out of it compared to some of the others. and I. Don't they still have some amusement business, I believe, but they got out of that pretty quickly. I mean, companies with their DNA really in the arcade business, like Sega and Namco, you know, stay in the arcade business. Konami sells their arcade operations in the mid 2000s, and they really just kind of abandon that arcade space because there's no sentimentality there. I mean, it should be no surprise that they got out of AAA game development largely. When you look at the way they got out of arcade development, because they'd been in arcades much longer. But when it became clear the game centers weren't going to be the profit centers they used to be, I mean, boom, you know, not maybe 100% gone, but drastically, drastically reduced. And this is a company that made its name in arcade video games with everything from Frogger to Dance Dance Revolution, but no sentimentality there. You know, if it's not performing, we're um, going to exit. Yeah. 
they never completely got out of the arcade, just as technically I'm not sure they've fully gotten out of AAA development, but it's it's diminished and, and they have no nostalgia or, or, or sympathy for that. It's it's no longer a profitable business segment, so we move on. In console, they were content to make games like the Silent Hill series or the Metal Gear Solid series, as long as these were highly profitable and a good return. But they were stumbling. Yes, they there were reverses. I mean, they were they were big in soccer, football. You know, they had Pro Evolution Soccer, which was the premier console soccer series in a lot of ways. But of course, Electronic Arts had FIFA. And over time, FIFA just came to completely dominate it, not just in sales, but also in terms of capability. I mean, FIFA became a truly high-class soccer game. They lost a lot of market share there in the soccer game. Kojima's games, uh, as interesting as they are, are big and expensive. And yes, they sell a lot of copies, but they become more and more concerned about the overhead involved in something like that. And they're facing the same problem that all the Japanese developers are that they find it impossible to effectively manage development in the AAA space in the era of HD because they don't have sufficient tools and pipelines and discipline of development hierarchies and, and development time. It's just there are great challenges there that we've talked about before, and the Japanese are starting to solve those. I mean, they're, they're starting to get there now that HD's been around a little longer. They're embracing middleware more. They're figuring out optimal schedules and, and all of that stuff, but they still have a ways to go. But a company like Konami that is faced with these problems isn't going to be patient with it, especially since there's this whole other mobile phone thing opening up. And I mean, mobile in Japan has been... We think it's big here in Japan, dear God. And it's been profitable a lot longer and big a lot longer. And of course, the reason for that, we've discussed this before, is the Japanese first of all, have very small homes. In fact, fewer and fewer Japanese are even owning televisions because, you know, you don't have your little 10-inch CRTs or whatever, you know, a, a little portable kind of television you can do anymore. If you're getting a television anymore, it's it's a flat screen and it's a big sucker. So, And that takes up valuable real estate. Fewer and fewer Japanese homes actually even have televisions, which is part of the reason why Nintendo kept desperately with both the Wii U and the Switch trying to pivot to something that provided a console experience without necessarily requiring a television. I mean, the Wii U still requires a television. It's getting people used to the concept of maybe having a handheld device. Right. And... Space is at a premium, so consoles, you don't necessarily, even if you have a television, want to have all your big bulky consoles underneath the television. Everyone's very busy. A lot of the free time comes during commutes, and a lot of them have long commutes. And so there's been this big shift that really started all the way back in the 90s, though it took a while to, to gain momentum, of moving from playing games on consoles to playing games on mobile devices, whether that be back in the day, Nintendo's Game Boy Advance or DS, or a mobile phone, a feature phone, or a smartphone. That is a very highly lucrative market that is kind of taking over from the console market. Here, mobile's big, but so is console still. In Japan, there's been a lot made about the fact that their console market keeps shrinking. And that's true, but they're still game players. It's just that they're doing it mobile more often. A company like Konami that is in the Japanese market first and foremost 
especially ever since uh, the beginning of the 2000s, the American companies have taken over more and more of the AAA console space. It's logical to shift to a market where there's going to be a lot of buy-in from your local population and where you can make lots of money off of your local population. You don't necessarily have to worry about making up the difference in the international markets, which are becoming more and more challenging for the Japanese companies to navigate. And mobile is very, is comparatively easy to develop for. You have smaller screens, smaller Mm -hmm. resolutions. So you can use some of the same tools and techniques you were already using. You don't have to worry about the HD aspect necessarily. Mm -hmm. You have different ways to get money where we have the whole microtransaction thing or the pay to get one more click thing. Yes. Gotcha gaming. (laughs) Gotcha gaming. And, uh, Konami had a lot of gotcha games. I think it's uh, that's been regulated more closely now in Japan. But back at the height of of gotcha gaming, <laughs> uh, this is gotcha uh, g a c h a, not not gotcha like I got ya. Um, but uh, it's a particular type of practically gambling almost uh, in mobile games. Konami had a lot of games in that area uh, because this is an area that they could understand. It goes straight back to. When they were doing metal games back in the day, and of course they're doing slot machines since the 90s, and they really invested heavily in these gotcha type games because that was kind of a spinoff on that, and now they're heavily into mobile games, and the console stuff is harder to deal with. Um, Even the successful games like Metal Gear are almost more headache than they're worth to get done from a Konami management perspective. Which is why there's the famous breakup. Yeah, and so that's how you get a company like Konami retreating from console gaming and going into these other areas because they're not a video game company. They are a profit-driven company and they will transition the entire company where they can make money. So really what we're seeing with Konami is they are transitioning from a home console thing to mobile, to cell phones and whatever else they happen to have in that space. Where they might go from there, who knows, but there certainly seem to be in a transition to that, or at least adopting early and trying to really get a good foothold like they did previously. Right. I certainly wouldn't rule out them returning to some other kind of uh, video gaming someday because they're a company that is always looking at the options and playing the angles, but they've never been just a video game company. So that's that's really why we have the situation we have today. And so while it's it's certainly sad from the point of view of a game aficionado, I mean, boy, did that uh, Silent Hill game look interesting that mm-hmm. they just started working on. <laughs> that, you know? that had so much promise to it. So, I mean, it's sad from our perspective, absolutely. But it's not surprising and it's not a betrayal in the sense that this is really what Konami has been all along and it's just in the West. We most associate them with the video games because that's what they got big on in the West. But that wasn't the beginning of the company, and it's uh, unlikely to be the end of the company. So there you have it. All right. That's pretty much the entire history of Konami. Well, (laughs) or at least uh, the early history uh, with a kind of zooming through the 90s. At least as much as this podcast is able to get its hands on. (laughs) Exactly. So, Alex, what will we discuss in our next episode? Let's stay on Japan for a bit. It's been so long since we've done Japan. Hello, Japan. That uh, it we're, feels we're like... going to have some us time. Yeah, it feels like uh, that's not in any way creepy <laughs> at all. 
So it feels like we can dig in to Japan some more. I think it's time we visited one of my favorite companies and yours. A company that for decades has been sending us out on quests to fight dragons. We do like quests of dragons. The company Enix. I don't, I don't think the history is well told in, in English. I mean, they're English language sources that do tell the history, but you kind of have to dig for them. We did talk a little bit about them with the RPG episode. We absolutely did. More focused specifically on Dragon Quest. And then, of course, there's that other company that I think I probably overall like more than you do, but that's okay. <laughs> called Square. Obviously, Square and Enix were the, were the leading RPG companies. They functioned in very different manners from each other. Both of them were founded by outsiders in the industry that went on to solicit the aid of people that were very interested in computers and computer gaming, and both ended up evolving into the same genre and the same field, but went about making their games in very different ways. And both of them ended up having very different fates, which of course ended with Square practically disintegrating and Enix swooping in to buy them and creating the, the company that exists today. So kind of uh, an overview of, of Enix, an overview of Square and uh, why these two companies had to, had to get together. They had to get married. That's right. All right. The merger of Enix and Squaresoft next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.daycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Shoot us an email at feedback at theycreateworlds.com And you can follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 